The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, very well, welcome to Squawk Box. It's Monday morning. You've got Karen Chow, myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. So global markets uh, starting the week on the front foot as investors eyeing earnings on both sides of the Atlantic alongside key meetings from the ECB and the Bank of Japan. President Biden faces escalating criticism over his interactions with the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the US leader hailing increased cooperation but leaving the kingdom with no tangible progress on oil prices. We will not walk away and leave a vacuum to be filled by China, Russia, or Iran. We'll seek to build on this moment with active, principal American leadership. Meanwhile, in other news this morning, Boeing forecasts stable aircraft demand over the next 20 years as the plane maker looks to secure orders and sustain its rivalry with Airbus at the Farnborough Air Show. A heat wave takes hold in Europe, sparking wildfires in France, Greece, Portugal and Spain, while the UK is expected to hit near record temperatures later today. U.S. markets Friday session responding to a lot of the big themes we've been talking about, inflation front and centre for investors and whether we're still looking at a 75 basis point rate move or 1%. And, and these expectations now, just pulling back to the 75 basis point range, uh, the view out there that perhaps 1% is too much and the Fed may be uh, tightening too aggressively if we are seeing inflation starting to decline. Huge focus on commodity prices in uh, recent weeks. The market uh, just trying to ascertain what that means for the Fed meeting next week. On top of that, uh, the clues from the C-suite. We had a bunch of them last week. JP Morgan, Delta Airlines warning about some of the storm clouds ahead and what that can mean for corporate earnings as well as for the economy broad more broadly. But it was certainly a, a decent old session that played out. You could see 2.1% pop for the Dow. Very strong build there. Financials are uh, one of the big areas of the market that uh, was actually trading ahead. City out with its report card. And uh, that saw a bounce as well, nearly on, near 2% on the S&P, 1.8% on the Nasdaq, a little bit behind, but still very strong gains nonetheless. But if you look over the course of the trading week for the sectors, uh, 10 out of 11 sectors are negative for the week to the downside communication services. That reflected in the big fang stocks that also lost territory over the week. So Friday gains, but still underlying that the big tech leadership was lacking over the course of last week. Consumer staples, though, the best performer for the trading week, uh, trading up by about a tenth of a percent. So barely anything in that trade as well as we talk about the best performer for the week for that particular for the sectors. For the Treasury markets, though, this is where we've seen a lot of movement as well. The short end, the long end, 2.91 where we're sitting. So still off the 3% mark. But the inversion and just how much the spread was widening out over the week was something a lot of investors watched for signs of weakness in the economy. More than 20-odd basis points now between the short and the long end. So there are very much genuine concerns out there about the type of slowdown that could hit at some point. 
because we now have very aggressive policy that has been uh, just priced into the equation. So a soft landing, a much firmer landing, that is still the concern for a lot of market participants. To the dollar, that escalation, the dollar trade was closely watched over the course of last week. The pressure that the Greenback Ascent has been placing on many different parts of the global economy. So we saw 1.8% gain on dollar index last week. You can see it's uh, come off a little bit morning session, putting some appetite back into sterling. 118.83.81, where we're trading about a quarter of 1% higher. The European market closely watching any resumption of gas supply from the Russians this week, as well as the ECB meeting, what means for Christine Lagarde in terms of the, the first rate hike. So uh, the uh, trade you can see perched off the the uh, parity level, so we are higher after breaking that last week, but uh, still not huge runaway moves to the upside to reclaim territory. Dollar weakening versus the Japanese yen, but again, the levels are worth bearing in mind. 138.32 is what we're watching. Dollar yuan trades a little bit weaker too. To the commodities, I think a lot of big discussions focused on what happened between the Americans and the Saudis. And uh, despite the, the lack of progress, there was a little bit of a drift in the price of oil while the conversations were being had. But as you can see, the price moving high this morning, a third of a percent north, 97.89, 101.81 on Brent. Perhaps a market verdict on lack of progression on uh, any form of uh, a conversation on more product to the market. What we're seeing on the Asian markets, this is how the trade looks. It's green and it is on the back of that Wall Street trade. Hong Kong is uh, the strongest, a 2.4% pop. Decent out of the, the Cosby that gained 40 points or one and three quarters of a percent. Shanghai also very strong and not quite keeping pace, but still decent performance of nine tenths of a percent for the Australian market. And some consolidation in the banks there that uh, some of the Australian traders are watching today. Let's take a quick look at the European close for Friday. We, we can see how we wrapped up the trading week. It was stronger. One 1.7 on the FTSE outpaced, though, by other markets across the continent, particularly the DAX, two and three quarters of a percent. So very strong trade as we wrapped up the trading week. And that said, it was still a loss for the trading period. We saw 1.1% stripped off the DAX for the trading week, softer too for the FTSE and uh, losses across some of the other major markets, in particular the Italian market. Just to regroup on that one, we were watching the politics very closely last week. That remains the case this week around Mario Draghi and the government. We saw the index falling 3.8% for the week to reflect some of the political risk in Italy. To US futures, early on, this is the trade state side. We look like we are set for a little bit of a, a move higher at this point. It uh, does look firmer, modestly firmer, right across the board. Now, elsewhere, the IMF Managing Director, Kristalina Gorgieva, has said inflation will be tamed in 2023 as rate hikes begin to take effect. Gorgieva made the prediction at the G20 meeting in Bali, telling CNBC policymakers must throw, quote, cold water on rising prices. She urged central banks to maintain their efforts until inflation expectations are anchored. For more on Gorgieva's comments, you can check out cnbc.com. The ECB and the Bank of Japan will be firmly in focus later this week, with both central banks set to release their latest rate decisions. Both have been laggards in the current rate hiking cycle, with neither yet to hike. ECB President Christine Lagarde is widely expected to unveil a 25 basis point hike on Thursday, the bank's first increase in over a decade, as pricing pressures spiked to near 9%. And bank earnings, too, set to stage today. Bank of America, Goldman Sachs are due to report before the bell. Tech earnings then come into focus with Netflix set to publish their latest figures after the market close on Tuesday. 
before Elon Musk's Tesla reports on Wednesday. So, of course, a, a huge deal there as we talk about uh, the Twitter bid. The ongoing political instability in Italy will come into focus on Wednesday with Prime Minister Mario Draghi set to address lawmakers and throughout the week will monitor the situation with Uniper. The German gas supplier is set to be nationalised, of course. I feel like I've cheated, Karen. You've had to do seven and a half minutes of talking at the top of the show. Congratulations. How are you? <laughs> Thank you. Good morning. Not, good morning. Uh, you can do the next seven and a half as well, if you like. Uh, not too hot yet? Power on the set. No, it's, we're setting up for a scorcher. Up well, apparently, yeah. We're going to what kind of Middle Eastern stroke Southern European temperatures mm. over the next couple of days. I believe so. But it is, of course, later in the day a lot of this starts to hit when it comes to But it's to the, the same UK. as when we get snow on the rare occasions in the UK. It's every, suddenly everyone starts telling us it's panic stations rather than thinking, you know, we can cope with this. We, we, we've coped with worse as a nation. Well, we've watched the, the screens, the data closely, and to me what jumps out is that tomorrow could actually be the worst one. It looked like we were setting up for So we're for peaking, Monday, what, 39, 40 degrees, and we have this red warning, yeah? Right. Well, tomorrow seems to be the 40 handle. Today is 36, 37, but I'm sure some parts of the country will be hotter and some will be cooler. Yeah. Well, it's a good job you're, you've got appointments all morning and you're going to be taking the tube later, right, I hear. Right. Yeah, well, lucky we're you. going to become weather forecast. Um, for the day, I think. Well, well indeed. Uh, more, more importantly, I have a question which I don't know the answer to. What do markets want? Do they want good data or bad data at the moment? Do they want uh, central banks to raise rates or do they actually want central banks to not have to raise rates? And actually, depending on the day, I think it, the answer depends. And I don't think there is a cohesive answer. I think the market action last week was amazing, as ever. I'm fascinated by it. I thought the retail sales uh, being as strong as they were on Friday was fascinating as manufacturing was pretty much very unimpressive as well. And yet we had strong retail sales data, which led to that move you can see on the screen now from the US markets, i.e. a strong rally to end what was a losing week as well. But had it been on a different day, I think we might have got a different result. These times are different, right? I mean, remember all the language you used to hear about how quietly optimistic people were, Goldilocks scenario markers, not too hot, not too yeah, cold. Yeah, that's because they were led down a garden path by a Federal Reserve and set of central banks who were talking hogwash. Right, but the, this is not the type of market we've got. We've got a lot of hot going on out there, and that's making the market very concerned about the sort of policy action, whether we're going to be too hot on policy action, making the economy too cold down the track. So there's a lot of extremes, I think, a bit like the temperature. The market is not really coping with the extreme data they're still getting on the inflation rate. I mentioned before hopes out there that inflation is fading. It wasn't really in the inflation numbers. Mm. We're not seeing it yet, right? We're seeing it in the commodity markets, but we're not seeing it in we the are, fast absolutely. data. So I think investors still want to see that proof when the inflation numbers cross okay. at some point. So, so what about, what about growth stocks? Again, I don't know the answers. This isn't a trick question. What about growth stocks? The growth stocks, which have taken an absolute pounding on the concerns of inflation, do they want tighter central bank action, i.e. because this is going to stop the scourge of inflation longer term down the lane? Or are they terrified of, of higher interest rates because it was a means for their discounted cash flow in the shorter term? Yeah, uh, growth stocks come off even in a crisis, don't they? But they perform sometimes better than other parts of the market because you effectively have growing earnings. Structurally immune, aren't yeah, they? But if you're looking at another 100 basis points potentially, uh, you're looking at stronger moves stateside, perhaps the valuation hasn't exactly been reset. So we're still, I think, in uncertain times. And what we've got to do now as investors over the next couple of weeks is pick out the, the strong from the weak. And yeah. that's, I think, even in the bank earnings, you saw very mixed reactions Absolutely. in the sector. Yeah, Citi yes, versus well. JP Morgan and some of the others due out this week. Well, let's do it. Uh, shares in Citigroup surged 13% after the US lender reported second quarter earnings. That beat analyst expectations, as Karen was saying. It was the bank's largest post-earnings stock gain in more than two decades. Is that a question about how much liquidity is in the market? The fact they can rally so much on the back of those numbers?
Uh, revenue for the quarter rose 11%, whilst earnings per share came in at $2.19. Now, the world's largest asset manager, BlackRock, reported second quarter profit that missed uh, falling 22% as, look at that, up 2%, falling. 22% as investors pulled roughly $10 billion from actively managed funds. Speaking on the earnings call, the CEO, Larry Fink, said that the current economic conditions were the most challenging in decades. And second quarter profit at the fourth largest U.S. bank, Wells Fargo, nearly halved. Uh, as the lender, and what do they do? They're up 6%, nearly halved, up 6%. Uh, as the lender set aside more funds to cover potential loan loss delinquencies. Uh, profit for the quarter came in at just over $3 billion, compared with $6 billion a year earlier, whilst total loan losses and provisions, I should say, were $580 million. The CFO of Wells Fargo, uh, Santo Massimo, uh, basically weighed in on the impact of rising rates. I do find it interesting that people are, are, are taking out the rule books now around, you know, what a recession really is. And, you know, given the particularly given the employment that employment, uh, you know, situation we have here, at, you know, almost full employment. And so, you know, so I think it's clear that the, the rising rates will have an impact on the economy. It's just exactly how that's going to impact, you know, customers and, and corporate clients, I think, is still to play out because we're not seeing that stress yet in any significant way. Luke Hickmore's got the answers, I'm sure, that Karen and I are, are probing for. He's uh, investment director, Aberdeen, this morning. First, I, I still don't know how to say Aberdeen anymore. Sorry, Luke. Uh, good morning to you, sir. In terms of what the market wants from these numbers, reassurance, hold-handing, better outlook. What is it, Luke? I think it's preparation for a recession, actually. Uh, we want to see good strength in balance sheets. We want to see good increases in net income. Um, we want to see them benefiting from higher interest rates but also starting to be cautious about how the consumer is going to survive over one or two years when, you know, the lower income brackets consumers are bleeding at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And despite the fact that we're seeing, as Karen pointed out, the war, a lot of the key global commodities coming off, a lot of the factors that have led to higher inflation will be in the system for a very long time, according to that latest CPI print we saw last week as well. So, are things, you, you said prepare for a recession, despite what we've heard, uh, and I've spoken to Mr. Draghi about it, others have spoken to Mrs. Yellen about it. We are going into a recession, are we, Luke? I, that's my base case. And, and it has been, I think, for probably as close to six to eight months now. I think it's really hard. If, if it's not a full-blown recession, it's certainly a consumer recession. And, and you know, that's 60-odd percent of the US economy. That's going to be hard to avoid. I think in the UK, that's baked on. I think in Europe, it's still questionable, but the ECB needs to raise rates, and I think it's going to be really hard uh, to avoid it. It's not going to be our normal recession. We're still going to have strong employment, and we're still going to have inflation hanging around. Um, we're going to be using stagflation as a word again and again and again, I'm sure, uh, but it's coming. Luke, can I ask you about the recession planning at the banks? Because they went from looking at the truckload of savings that consumers had built up on the back of the pandemic and the, the rude health they seemed to be in and started to hand back some of the, the provisions to, to shareholders to write them back onto the balance sheet. And now they're planning for the next cycle, the next downturn. How does it look at this point? What are the banks in for? Well, the really big banks, the city, JP Goldman's, the globally systemic banks have also stopped their share buybacks. And they've done that with the stress test they've got saying, you know, it, there's problems down the road, just get prepared. And, and also, 
the lower income uh, consumers have spent those reserves. It's gone. Some great work last uh, last couple of weeks, Morgan Stanley and all of that, uh, saying that, you know, it's also going to work out the income tree. And let's be honest, if the Fed really wants to get inflation down, they've got to work out the income tree as well to find the point of pain where inflation stops and starts going down again. So consumers are going to be forefront of our mind for the banks, for everybody, for the next year or two. And the banks will continue to increase their reserves. We see this again and again and again. And as you say, post the recession, post the next couple of years, they'll release them all again uh, and off we go. But right for now, uh, I'm quite pleased to see them building their balance sheets up. It was such a short window, wasn't it, from releasing reserves to, to turning yeah. around and now having to, to restore them. When it comes to the Wall Street side, the investment banking, we saw uh, some of the banks have a wobble on the back of very little activity. Uh, it was only really market activity. It wasn't m and it wasn't underwriting, it wasn't IPOs. How does the next phase look like if we are still in uncertain times around the economic activity? Yeah, it feels, it feels if you've got a big investment banking operation, that's the bit that you're seeing a lot of volatility. Citigroup, as you say, stand out, great result. But JP Morgan pointed to that. We'll get more on that on Bank of America and Goldman Sachs today. And I think all of it is pointing to lower volumes. You know, QE has stopped. QT will start. That may increase some volatility and some volumes as well. But, you know, those investment banking fees have been hard to come by this year. And that's probably going to be the case, I think, for at least another six months. Having consumer exposure, even with all the problems the consumer has, at least you get some net interest income and it's increasing at the moment. Um, and mortgages in the US, you know, 30-year mortgages, five, five and a half percent now. Um, that's that's still pretty decent, even when interest rates may top at three and a half. Uh, that's pretty profitable business for the banks to do. Um, Luke, just compare and contrast. The US banks, um, I think, are in pretty strong fettle according to the, the, what they're valued at compared with the European banks. Is there going to be any closing of the gap or is the Malaysian European banks set to continue and get worse? Uh, until we really get convinced that the European Union can have a banking union and actually approve mergers to get some of the weakness into some big, strong continental leaders, I think that valuation gap will likely remain. OK. All right, Luke, we're going to let you go. By the way, how do you say Aberdeen now? Do you just still say Aberdeen? or <laughs> Just say Aberdeen. Yep. OK. OK. Because I, I, I know I'm confused. I shouldn't be. But... Uh... <laughs> Luke Hickmore, Investment Director at the acronym, acronym known as Aberdeen. Thank you very much indeed for that, Luke. Strange I'm so glad you said that. It's uh, very difficult. It comes up into the script sometimes. You're like, bur- <laughs> well, it's not a burden. You can't <laughs> no. say that. No, it's not a burden on shareholders. No, no. you're not allowed to say that. Coming up on this show, President Biden concludes this uh, his visit to the Middle East but fails to secure any immediate progress on oil output. We'll discuss more after the break. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts.
The G20 has failed to issue a joint statement after two days of meetings in Bali, Indonesia. Finance ministers instead pledged to address the growing global food crisis, while central bankers agreed on the need to tackle soaring inflation. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said differences among the attendees, which included representatives from both Russia and Ukraine, prevented them from issuing a formal communique. Well, utterly obvious, forecastable. Obvious, right? Hence my question to Marty, uh, are they going to be any more successful than the failure, I thought, of the G7? But they're both defunct organisations at the moment until they prove otherwise. Mm. It's but just not, it's just not working and it's players. unworkable given these, the parties that are involved. Uh, there are some issues like on hopefully on climate that they can move forward on. But again, it's it's a lot of it's just, but no communicate no. at all. The amount of times they've argued about what's in the communicate, but then to not even put one out shows just how dysfunctional these organisations well, are. We're a long way from any uh, peace agreement, it would seem anyway, when it comes to the war in Ukraine, any negotiated outcome. But having all the players in the room and vested interests around those particular players at the one event, does it make a difference? I mean, they're not going to get to communicate, but are they going to get to a point where there could be some improvement because there is a conversation happening in back channels? And the answer so far is no, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you can only hope. Well, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink has warned that surging energy costs have distracted investors from the ongoing food supply crisis amid the destruction of farmland in Ukraine and near doubling of fertilizer prices. That's after a warning from the World Bank that food prices are set to rise 20% this year. Well, Europe is in the grip of one of the hottest summers on record, with wildfires raging in France, Spain and Greece. And meanwhile, Portugal reported deaths in their hundreds from the heat. Britain is forecast to see the mercury rise above 40 degrees today and tomorrow, an unprecedented figure. French President Emmanuel Macron visited a crisis centre in Bordeaux where more than 11,000 people have been forced to evacuate amid raging forest fires and expressed his support for the emergency services. We are living through an exceptional season by its harshness. We already have three times more forest burn than in 2020. We had at the same time a spring that has been very dry and fires that spread with force. So I really want to thank all those who are on the front line fighting the fires to protect the population, to protect the national territory from these fires. We will continue to do that. President Biden has concluded his visit to the Middle East, promising to keep relations with the region open, but he failed to secure any immediate deal on oil production or commitments on regional security that would also include Israel. Uh, Biden said the U.S. will continue cooperation with Middle East countries, highlighting many areas of potential improvement. The United States is going to remain an active, engaged partner in the Middle East. As the world grows more competitive, and the challenges we face more complex, it is only becoming clear to me that how closely interwoven America's interests are with the successes of the Middle East. We will not walk away and leave a vacuum to be filled by China, Russia, or Iran. We'll seek to build on this moment with active principal American leadership. To break down there, of course, uh, U.S. engagement in the region, uh, progress of peace talks and indeed energy commitments. Hadley, how does the president score on his trip? 
<laughs> I might not be the best person to ask Steve because from where I was sitting, not very high indeed. And the reason for that, of course, is he didn't walk away with anything on energy. What we heard from the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, was that they are still trying to reach 13 million barrels per day by 2027. This was a not a new announcement, I might add. This is something that they've said time and time again, um, that that's something that they want to achieve. But they don't even know if they'll even be able to get there. And his message after that was, you guys have got to get your act together. He was talking about the United States. He was talking about Europe. He was talking about international oil companies, as well as policymakers, when it comes uh, to their outlook for oil, to their willingness to invest, um, and to what his own foreign minister Minister for State for Foreign Affairs, excuse me, called irrational uh, energy policies that could potentially lead to inflation. Now, when it came to Mideast security, lots of conversations were had about the impact of Iran on the Middle East more broadly, not just, of course, in the Gulf Arab countries, the Strait of Hormuz, but also the security of countries like Lebanon, for example. Um, and we understand that there were conversations had about food security when it comes to Jordan and Egypt and Lebanon. But at the end of the day, the big question still looming large was whether or not the United States, the White House, this administration can have a functioning relationship with um, the Saudis after the president, of course, had called them a pariah state. They tried to shift that narrative. They tried to say we're going to go from pariah to partner. Listen in, though, to what uh, the climate envoy, Adel Al-Jaber, he's the former foreign minister, he's currently the minister of state for foreign affairs, had to say on this because there was a lot of dissension uh, following that meeting with MBS that this issue had been raised, that the president had pushed the human rights agenda, and at the same point that MBS had actually pushed back. Listen in. The president brought up the issue of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, as you mentioned, and uh, His Royal Highness's response was that this is an issue that is uh, tremendously painful for Saudi Arabia, that we uh, uh, dealt with this matter, that it was uh, referred, investigated, that it was referred to the courts, and that the courts issued verdicts against the uh, um, uh, accused, and uh, a number of them have been sentenced to uh, serve time in jail, and they're doing so as we speak. So we took action. The uh, uh, people were punished and that Saudi Arabia put in place mechanisms to ensure that this doesn't happen again. And the Crown Prince made the point that mistakes happen in, in many places. The year Jamal Khashoggi was murdered. Now, another thing that the president brought up was um, the idea that it was U.S departure from the region that was a mistake that he, of course, was a part of when he was the vice president under Barack Obama, under the infamous pivot to Asia that in many, many ways kickstarted or galvanized, if you will, um, the move on the part of the Saudis and other Gulf Arab nations toward a more activist foreign policy. And as a result of that, we've seen Yemen and other um, uh, messes, if you will, in the region. But it was interesting to note that he focused on China and he focused on Russia as well as Iran and their growing influence in the region. Now, I asked Adel Al-Jaber about that specifically as well and said, you know, how do you feel about that? The White House has essentially said that they want to, to fill that gap, if you will, and they don't want Beijing or uh, the Kremlin to be a part of it. But when it comes to Russia, this is a relationship that, Steve, as you very well know, the Saudis and other Gulf Arab countries worked very, very hard to put into motion and to keep over the last couple of years. And at the same point, when it comes to Beijing, the largest foreign direct investor in the UAE, as well as in Saudi Arabia, it's their largest trading partner. So what in the world would be the incentive for them at this point um, to pull back on that, especially at a time when the White House continues to engage with Iran over the potential for a new JCPOA. So those conversations didn't really seem to have gone 
much further than putting it all out there, putting it on the table. But, you know, the White House, again, trying to say that if we don't start the dialogue with these folks, once again, we're going to be an even bigger mess. So in terms of grading this trip, one has to wonder um, what it was all really for. And I think that the president is going to continue to see pushback within his own party, certainly the progressive ring of that, because looking at the Washington Post headline this morning that I got in my inbox, it said, (laughs) was this Middle East trip even worth it? Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC. <laughs>